Hey, everybody, this is a special edition of the Washington State Indivisible podcast. I'm your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. So as most of you know, Indivisible co-founders and co-executive directors Leah Greenberg and Ezra Levin have put out a new book about the movement called We Are Indivisible, a Blueprint for Democracy After Trump. As I said in my interview with them earlier this week, it is a fantastic book, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. If you have not picked it up yet, please do so. So while they were here in Washington, they had had a public appearance where they sat down with our very own Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. And this was at the University Temple United Methodist Church on Sunday night. I know a lot of you across the state were very sad that you were not able to be there. So I'm very excited to share the talk in its entirety here on the show. So here is Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. Hello, Seattle. How are you? Oh, come on. Give them a better welcome than that. Hello, Seattle. How are you? Um, it is so great to be here, and I want to start out by thanking the University Bookstore. Um, we are so proud in Seattle to have the most independent bookstores per capita in the country, um, and we really appreciate them. Um, and then I also want to thank the United Methodist Church also for letting us be here. And most of all, I want to thank these two amazing, amazing leaders who have really changed the face of our movement, our resistance, across the country. So give it up for Leah and Ezra. Um, so we're gonna have about 30 minutes of Q&A from up here and then we'll open it up. We have your questions, we have your cards, so we'll try to get through as many as possible. And if by chance we get through all of them, then we'll let you stand up and ask some questions too. Um, and I wanna start by just saying that I think there's this misnomer, misnomer of incredible movement organizations that you plan for these organizations and that they are deeply strategically you know, developed over months, maybe even years. Um, that is not my experience when I started One America, call it, then called Hate Free Zone after 9-11. I never thought I was gonna start an organization. So can you tell us about Indivisible and really just sort of the key, three key pieces of how and why you started it and specific moments in the development of the organization that really stand out to you. Absolutely, and first, thank you so much, Representative Jayapal. It's such an honor to be on the stage with you tonight. Um, so Indivisible got started shortly after the 2016 election. Um, my, uh, Ezra and I were both former congressional staffers. We had been on the Hill during the early Obama years, and um, we had watched the rise of the Tea Party, a very powerful local movement that had a lot of success in frustrating the Obama agenda in core ways. They didn't win everything, but they got a lot. Um, and that had been a kind of a painful period in our lives for the first, for after we moved on from the Hill. But after 2016, um, we were going through the stages of grief, like a lot of people, and we settled on anger. And we were sort of like, we're seeing this surge of people all over the country who are getting active, who are getting um, involved, who are trying to figure out how to resist. And we actually have this playbook. We have a really powerful um, set of lessons that we've learned from the Tea Party, which, just to be clear, they learned from Saul Alinsky. So this goes back. This is a cycle of movement learning. Um, and we could take that and put it out into the world and you know, just make it available. And so we put this guide online. There was a sentence in the original Indivisible guide that I think um, was kind of a throwaway sentence, but was relevant in retrospect, which was, we recommend giving your group a name that represents uh, its localness, 
um, and you know something about your values. And you can take the indivisible name if you want, although we're not offended if you don't. And then we put it online. And then suddenly, there were uh, indivisible groups popping up all over the country. Um, literally within a couple of hours, we were getting emails from people all over the country who had read the guide. And then in a matter of about a week... And they, and they were all pointing out the typos, very helpful. Yeah, a lot of emails, <laughs> a lot of emails pointing out typos. Um, thanks, everyone. Um, <laughs> And, but then within about a week, there were indivisible groups that had started to pop up all over the country. People who had read the guide and who were going to take the strategy, who'd often already come together in somebody's living room or in a church or in a library around the country after the election and said, I don't know what we're going to do, but we got to do something. And who were now organizing under this umbrella, um, the indivisible name and taking part the strategy as some of what they were doing, often uh, branching out quickly into a whole host of other things. And we just found ourselves that we had catapulted ourselves into the center of this movement moment that we were suddenly kind of organizing with and in collaboration with this incredible decentralized movement led locally all over the country. Can I just ask, uh, raise your hand, are you, if you are connected to a local indivisible group? Oh, this is great. So we, we preach to the choir a lot, but we're not able to always do it in a church. So this is a special joy, but I love that a ton of hands went up, but not all the hands, because the point of the book was in part to talk about the indivisible movement, and it is a love letter to the movement. But also, it's not enough if we just stay exactly who we are. We have to grow. We have to build as we head into 2020 and 2021. So if you didn't raise your hand, this is a great opportunity to join your local indivisible group, and there's going to be an opportunity to do that later in the night. How many indivisibles are there now across the country? It's a great question. There are thousands of indivisible groups across the country. There's one in every congressional district, and often more, um, as folks here probably probably know. And you guys are married, right? Still. Yeah. Still <laughs> married, all yes. of it. And you wrote the book together, and there are, for those of you who haven't read it, I read the whole thing, and there are these really interesting footnotes throughout the book where it's like Ezra's footnote and then Leah's footnote. And there's one point in the book where they actually diverge and they stop using the we pronoun and they start, you know, and they say this is Ezra's experience and this is Leah's experience. But how was it writing the book as a married couple and how is it leading the organization as a married couple? Do you want to talk about the book and I'll talk about the organization? Sure. I, I think they're both Look a at lot. that collaboration. Uh, so I think Lee and I have uh, different complementary writing styles, I would say. I produce a ton of content and then Leah cuts it all. Um, <laughs> and then he's like, you killed my babies. And I'm like, yep, yeah, we, yeah, we did. So we are we are sim we we lead the the national indivisible organization to write the book which we started right after the 2018 election. Um, I took point on doing the first draft, and then Leah uh, was head. Uh, uh, organizer of the organization, then Leah took point on the book, and then we figured out we just had to really do it together line by line. So it was a it was a process, and it was something that we thought was going to be able to be wrapped up maybe by February or March. We could just really bang this out. Um, turned out as we started writing, we were like, oh, we need to tell the story of what happened with the, the tax fight in Seattle, or we need to tell the story about East Tennessee, and so we would do another interview. So that's why, you know, we ended up wrapping up, I think, in late August. So this is, there's um, uh, quite a bit in there that took uh, deep dives with the indivisible groups around the country. In terms of leading the organization, um, what I always say is, you know, I'm 
almost three years now into being um, in leadership of this organization, and I don't really understand how anyone is an executive director on their own. Um, there's just like, there aren't enough hours in the day, there's too much, um, it feels like a job for way more than one person. And I also don't understand how anyone is a co-executive director with someone they're not married to. Um, like. <laughs> It helps a lot that there's, you know, we've, we're committed to unconditionally love each other no matter what, you know, we're dealing with right now. Um, so, you know, I'm not saying that, like, the way of the future is everybody form an organization or a business with your spouse, but it might work. <laughs> That's fabulous. Um, there's so many really important points in the book, and I just want to try to go through a few of them now. Um, I, for those of you who have heard me, you've heard me say that Trumpism didn't start or end with Donald Trump. And you talk about this in your introduction, and you specifically say it's dangerous to treat Trump like a complete aberration or to put all the blame on him. American democracy is in crisis not just because of Trump, but because of real structural flaws in our system and a long-term campaign by powerful reactionary forces to undermine representative rule. In the first chapter of the book, you talk about a buckling and rigged democracy. And I'd like you to tell folks here, though I have a feeling that many people understand what you're talking about, but tell us exactly what you mean by that. Do you want to take one of those and I'll take the other? You go for it. Great. Um, so when we talk about a buckling and rigged democracy, we're talking about two central problems that are kind of converging to lead us to where we are today. Buckling democracy is really about the fact that we have a political system that was designed a long time ago in a very different context and that frankly just is st structurally unable to deal with the set of polarized parties and the current um, political eco ecosystem that we have today. So presidential systems are widely acknowledged by political scientists to be inherently somewhat politically unstable. Um, for a really long time, the only presidential system that had lasted for more than I think 100, 150 years was the United States. And that was because we had these very ideologically incoherent parties. Our parties were kind of split along lines post-Civil War that didn't actually necessarily represent ideology so much as coalitions uh, that had been formed post-Civil War. Um, and over the course of the last 50, 50 plus years, we've actually increasingly had ideologically coherent parties in a system that is not designed to have ideologically coherent parties playing hardball. So each, the opposition party wins when they can block the party in power from doing anything. They generally are able to win the next election if they do that. And we have a system that's structured to deliver so many different choke points that you can totally get away with that. And that means that government overall is breaking down. The ability of the federal government to deliver change in any meaningful way is just not working anymore. Um, I'll take myself as an example, I'm 33. There has been one period of time in my entire life when there has been major progressive change, right? It was the six-month period when there were, was not only President Obama, not only a major House majority, but 60 votes in the Senate for Democratic priorities. That is the only time we've actually been able to pass major structural or major change. Is it any wonder that millennials and people who are coming after them are starting to lose faith in democracy when democracy has almost never actually been responsive to their needs? So that's buckling. Oh, rigged. Yeah, I love the rigged part, so I get to talk about that. That's great. Um, 
So we actually start the book off with a quote, which I don't think is a, I wouldn't say it's a, an inspirational quote, but I think it's a motivating quote. Uh, it's a four decade old quote from a real architect of the modern conservative movement, somebody who helped forge the relationship between the religious right and corporate power, this guy named Paul Weyrich. He was the founder of the Conservative Heritage Foundation as well. Um, and uh, this is almost a direct quote, although you can read it in the book. Um, and it is, I don't want everybody to vote, frankly, our leverage in elections goes up as the voting populace goes down. So I don't want everybody to vote. There's a four decade old quote, but it lines directly up with what we see happening on the floor of the US Senate and the House of Representatives where uh, Senate Majority Leader Republican Mitch McConnell calls voting rights and election security uh, socialism and a power grab, where you see literally every single Republican member of the House of Representatives vote against an election security package. This is not uh, a Trump invention, although he benefits from it. This is a multi-decade strategy to systematically disenfranchise the electorate. And it, and it stems out of this, this basic analysis from that quote, which is a smart analysis, that there is a recognition that an extremist reactionary agenda of cutting taxes for corporations and rich people and installing ideological judges on the courts is not super popular. And it gets increasingly unpopular as time goes on because these conservative ideologues, they are not dummies. They read the same demographic statistics that we do. They know the country is getting more diverse and more unequal. And faced with that basic reality, they have a choice to either moderate their positions or make sure that that changing electorate can't actually have representation. And, and it's clear they've chosen the latter. So yes, Donald Trump is this problem. He is this symptom, but it's a symptom of a much deeper problem. And we see that whether it's on the floor of the Senate or the House or in North Carolina or Georgia or Arizona or North Dakota, where they're systematically trying to make sure that this changing electorate is not represented. And the reason why we think we need to focus on this is because Donald Trump, the entire Donald Trump era has been this battle between utter malice and total incompetence. And we've been lucky in that respect because sometimes the incompetence wins out. But there are other would-be autocrats out there who are watching this administration right now. And if we think he is an anomaly and we treat November 2020 as the end date, after that we've saved democracy, we can go home everybody, then there are potential presidents like Ted Cruz or other Republicans who are watching this right now who will be just as malicious but will be hyper-competent. And so we think that it's important to understand Donald Trump, yes, we need to get rid of him, but ultimately we need to change the democratic institutions so they reflect this changing electorate. That's how we actually save democracy. The one other thing. The one other thing that I would add that I think is really important to, to be clear on is that um, race is very much at the center of this, right? The fight for the right to vote has not ended since literally the Civil War. It changed a little bit after the Voting Rights Act, but fundamentally this is a struggle over who votes, whose votes count, who's actually considered somebody who has a legitimate say in this republic or in this democracy. Um, and this is, about, this is about a coalition of reactionary conservatives who fundamentally view a rising American electorate that is more diverse um, as illegitimate. I, I have also been thinking that the three supremacies are really what we have to take on if we're gonna win. So corporate supremacy, white supremacy, and individual supremacy. And you sort of talk about these in your book. One of, the, um, one of my favorite chapters is the one that's midway and it's called How to Build Power Together. Yeah. 
And in it, you talk about how Trump's election shocked many people, and it didn't shock others. And I should say that my husband is somewhere here in the audience, and when Trump started running, he said, oh, this is great, he's never gonna win. And I said, yes, he is. Yes, he is. And I hate to be right about that, but um, you talk about that specifically in the context of privilege. And um, I was hoping you could talk about that question of privilege and how the world has appeared or occurred for people who perhaps don't have privilege um, versus those who do, and how you see that as central to the work that Indivisible is doing and what we really have to do to build kind of a more equitable and just future. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that I've heard as I talk with Indivisible leaders around the country and part of the, our own journey ourselves is, um, you know, a lot of times when folks went from zero to 60 after the election, it's because um, you, we thought that something about the existing system, you know, whether it was the parties or the media or the elites or something about how power was constructed in this country would stop such a wildly dangerous outcome as a President Donald Trump. Um, we thought the American people would reject him. We thought that uh, somebody on the Republican side would intervene. Whatever it was, we had some faith that something would stop this. And, you know, not everybody had that faith. That faith in the system is not a demographically evenly distributed phenomenon to begin with. And so when we kind of joined, a lot of times we recognize that we are joining fights that have been going on for a really long time, right? The struggle for immigrant rights did not start in 2016. And in fact, um, you know, one of the things we talk about in the book is the reason that DACA was in danger and the reason that the DACA program could be rescinded by Donald Trump is because we, when we had unified democratic control, were not actually able to pass permanent protections for dreamers into law. Um, and that's, you know, that reflects the fact that there was a much longer struggle that was going on long before, uh, like as we were organizing. And so for us as a national organization, and I know for many indivisible groups, really at the center of, you know, joining that fight is kind of how do we support the leadership of directly impacted communities? Um, we were very fortunate. We actually got started, um, our policy director, who was one of uh, our co-authors of the guide and an early volunteer, was actually also um, a staffer with an immigrant rights organization. We were able to work very closely with them. Um, they were actually one of the leading groups that was suing uh, in the Muslim and refugee ban at the time. And so we were able to kind of start at the ground level by building out partnerships that were really about um, you know, a commitment to the leadership and the advocacy of people who were directly under threat. And, and that has been something that I think we've really tried to emphasize and that I know groups have tried to emphasize in our own work across the country. Do you want to add anything? I thought that was great. <laughs> so you, you call it um, follow somebody else, I think, in your, in your book. You um, also spend a good chunk of the book explaining the concept of constituent power. Yeah. And you have all these incredible successes that indivisible groups across the country have really been able to move forward. And you have these little sections that are lessons throughout the book for, for activists. So pick your top two each of those lessons. I know this is gonna be hard, but pick two that you wanna share, each of you can pick two that you wanna share with the group here. Um, many of you are indivisible activists, so you probably have your own lessons you wanna share, but let's hear what you two have to say. Sure, um, I'm gonna start, wait, actually you go, I've been talking a lot. Uh, well, so the first one is re-election, re-election, re-election. 
Yes, I took hers. Um, uh, so we start with that, uh, and that, that's kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek version of talking about the, the, the central premise of indivisible, which is that in a representative democracy, your representatives ought to represent you. And, and the, that's a belief, but it also ties into this concept of power, which is that every representative, even the best representatives, have to be reelected to remain representatives. And that, that's healthy, that's, that's good. That's how we've set up the system of representative democracy. We have power as people. We choose to lend that to our representatives. And from time to time, they've got to come back and ask if they can borrow it for a bit longer. We call that an election. And so the, the reason why that's the first lesson is you have power, we have power individually because our representatives have to constantly come back to us and ask for that vote, which means they have to be very attentive to the folks in their district. Indivisible started uh, in response to this wave of energy that was already bubbling up after the election with people trying to grapple with this huge problem, which was how do we resist this incoming administration? How do we wrap our arms around this? This is so huge. And we had to tell people, look, Donald Trump doesn't care what you think. Mitch McConnell doesn't care what you think. And that's not even a knock on Mitch McConnell. Unless you live in Kentucky, our system of government isn't set up so he should care what you think. But your representatives do. And that gives you power. That's the heart of constituent power. So if you organize, you can affect their behavior because members of Congress, every elected official is going to respond to that external stimuli just like anybody else does. So if you get some press saying they're doing something good, they're going to keep on doing that. If you get some press or put some pressure on that says they're doing something bad, they're probably gonna respond to that too. So I think that that is an absolutely core lesson that's at the root of just about everything else we do. The, the other one I would pick out, which I really liked, is Don't Be Boring. Um, uh, so there's a great book that came out a couple years ago called uh, Twitter and Tear Gas by a Turkish scholar, uh, Zineb Tefekci. And she talks about um, uh, how media is really oxygen for any social movement. Media is really important. It's how you get legitimacy. It's how you're able to focus pressure on the, on the power sources that you're trying to focus on. It's how you recruit new people. And the fact of the matter is, if you are doing boring stuff, it's gonna be hard to get media. It's gonna be hard to recruit new people. So some of the really proud moments, and we tell some of these stories in the book, some of the proud moments we have of the indivisible movement isn't you know, brilliant strategic moves that we came up at the national level. It's the creativity that was tapped into by local indivisible groups. And we saw this in Seattle when uh, the local representative was hiding from indivisible groups. So they had an empty chair town hall to make clear that he wasn't representing the indivisible groups. In Michigan's 11th, Dave Trott, another Republican who was sort of supporting Trump care, um, was refusing to show up. Um, and so they, uh, the indivisible groups there, got a live chicken on stage to represent Dave Trott. Um, so that kind of, you know, some quirkiness, some funniness, that is important actually. And it's not, it's important because it keeps the things interesting, it gets more media, it gets more people involved, um, and it just makes it uh, something that you want to be part of. And that helps us sustain. This is why we're here three years later. We're not here three years later because we've done the exact same thing every single week. Uh, we're here three years later because we still want to be here. All right, so he took a couple of mine, but we're gonna go into a few others. Um, so we talk about the virtuous cycle of advocacy in elections, and that's really, I think, at the core of um, 
a lot of uh, the indivisible theory and work, which is, you know, there is actually a really direct relationship between the advocacy that you're doing on, you know, a, a state legislative priority or a federal legislative priority and the electoral results that happen a year or two years later. Um, elections are not actually the product of a turnout operation, right? They, although that is important, they are the product of all of the press coverage and all of the narratives and all of the, um, you know, interactions that an elected official has had in the two years or four years or six years leading up to their election. And because of that, um, indivisible has this really powerful, indivisible groups have this really powerful role segueing between advocacy work and electoral work. So folks who are showing up and mobilizing their group for a town hall in 2017 are both helping to write kind of the attack ad script for the election in 2018, and they're also building up strength so that they can then turn around and knock doors for a better candidate in 2018. Um, and that's sort of the cycle that we, that we see. And in doing so, you build power and you put in place somebody who's actually gonna represent you better, and that means that you get to move your advocacy priorities the next year. Um, the other lesson that I would add is, oh, and I actually, in that note, um, I just wanna shout out, in the book, we talk about uh, Indivisible Washington's 8th District, we talk about Dave Reichert um, and his decision to retire. To be, to be clear, that's not cheering for Reichert, right? Right, right. Yeah. Um, and we talk about, you know, one of the other things that you can do during this cycle, which is you can actually, if you're, if you're really demanding that your representative advocate and get engaged with you, um, you, can, you can make being representative either more fun or less fun. Um, and a lot of indivisible groups, leaders like Chris Petzold in Washington's 8th District, they were actually able to, you know, change the way in which elected officials were engaging with their constituents and make it harder for them to, you know, keep their job if they were going to go unquestioned. So that's one. The other that I would add is, <laughs> and she's here, and yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Round of applause for everyone who is, yes. Um, and yeah, the other one that I would add is electability is a myth. Um, so we think this is important because fundamentally when we talk about electability, a lot of times we're talking about whatever the representative or whatever the position is, whoever held that position last. And given the systems of power in our country, that's usually going to be a white man who had a lot of money coming in. Um, and you know, fundamentally that's a problem both because a representative democracy's legitimacy really depends on having representatives of all identities and all experiences at the table. And, you know, it's also a problem because it's not true. There is just not really evidence that, um, you know, we really know how to predict electability. We as Democrats have a long history of trying to choose candidates based on what we think other people are going to like and then losing elections. Um, John Kerry was the electable candidate in 2004. I personally voted him for him because I wanted to beat George W. Bush. Um, and I don't know if somebody else might have worked better, but I know that that wasn't the reason that I should have voted. Um, and so that's, that's another lesson that I'm fond of and that's relevant right now. <laughs> Two things on that. I just want to say thank you, 7th District, for electing the first person of color that Democrats have ever sent to Congress. Um, I appreciate that. And to say that there's this sense of propriety that has existed in Congress where, for example, you never went into somebody else's congressional district to do town halls, and Mark Pocan and I, as co-chairs of the Progressive Caucus, said we are actually going to go into other districts where people won't do town halls and we'll go. And so I want to thank Indivisible 8 for having that town hall where I went. and. Um, 
I will tell you that Dave Reichert refused to do anything with me after that, and so did all the Republicans for Washington State, even when we had you know, very uncontroversial bills, they wouldn't sign on because they were so angry that I had violated that sense of propriety. But I think that we have to put the interests of people ahead of propriety. And so I just want to talk a little bit about um, the, how we translate this into truly progressive policy that represents everybody. Because we are still electing people within the Democratic Party, and you talk about this in the book. You say we're not an arm of the Democratic Party. We are for democracy. Um, but we are not the Democratic Party. Yep. And um, as you know, we've been trying to uh, also shift how the Democratic Party responds. Part of what's been so great for me and working with the two of you has been, and with Move On and all the other groups, is that we're thinking differently about inside-outside strategy and how we coordinate as activists and organizers on the inside and the outside. How do we deal with the fact that there's so much fear that we might lose the House, for example, um, Democrats might lose the House, that we are willing to tolerate positions on issues like immigration reform, detention, incarceration, from some of our Democratic colleagues um, that frankly are at the core of what it's gonna take to really bring about justice for everybody. How do we deal with that tension of we don't wanna lose the House, yep. so we need to support this candidate, but you know what, they're still not with us on name whatever issue you want. So, um, you know, we, like you said, at the, the very first page of the Indivisible Guide, we said half of the battle is getting your Democratic representatives to actually stand, capital D Democrat representatives, to stand up for progressive values. And, you know, I'll never forget, there was this 24-hour period in November of 2016, and we, we talk about this too, where this is after Trump was elected, but before, uh, before 2017 when he was inaugurated. And there were, there were two, two stories within 24 hours each, of each other. One was um, uh, an interview with a future Trump appointee in which he cited the Japanese internment camps of World War II as an example of what to do with immigrants, refugees, Muslims. And within 24 hours of that, we saw an interview with incoming minority leader Chuck Schumer uh, um, in the New York Times in which he said, well, we lost the election. We're just going to have to figure out how to make deals with the other side. That's how it goes. And so there, it was this really terrifying moment where there was a potential future in 2017 in which the, uh, the roads to America's new internment camps were well paved. And that was the bipartisan agreement. And that, that we thought was morally reprehensible, but also politically stupid, that that was no way to retake power, that actually the right thing to do was to fight back against this rising tide of white supremacy. And also, that's how we're going to build up the support we need to win. So I, I would start by saying it is, a, it is a false choice that we are not losing elections because we're, um, we're doing too much to fight back against big pharma or big corporate power, or we're doing too much to define that America is a nation of immigrants, that these issues are broadly popular, um, and they're even popular in these swing districts. And so, you know, the answer for us is, we need to be mobilizing power in those districts because the, the folks who are making decisions about which way to go on national democratic priorities are going to be looking at Seattle, but they're also going to be looking at these frontline districts. They're going to be looking to see what, are, what do people in those districts feel. And if you're not organizing as well in those districts, they're going to do this default position of saying, well, we've got to, we've got to moderate, we've got to sell some populations down the river because that's, that's the way that um, we're going to win. 
I would just add, um, so my personal congressional experience, I worked for Tom Perriello, who was a member from Virginia, who was elected in 2008 with 500 votes in a very red Virginia district, um, proceeded to act like a progressive in Congress, took a series of votes for the stimulus, for a climate change bill, for the Affordable Care Act, and then go home to his constituents and actually tell them what he had done and why he believed it was gonna make their lives better and really be accessible and actively defend what he was doing and make the case for it. Um, and you know, heading into 2010, um, we didn't have high hopes that we were gonna win, right? If you win by 500 votes in 2008, you're probably not gonna survive a wave election in 2010. Um, but what we did do was we dramatically outperformed most of the Democratic representatives who had broken from the Democratic Party on those key priorities. Priorities. There was actually another congressional district uh, where the representative in Virginia had won by four points, so significantly more, and then lost by, I think, eight or 12, um, when we only lost by four. So what we saw was actually, you know, people might not always have agreed, but they actually respected somebody who was consistently willing to show up and engage and make the case for democratic policies. Um, and it also motivated our own base, right? Um, that actually, you know, that held a solid portion of our own folks who might not normally have turned out in a midterm election. So the other thing that I would add in that situation is I do think a lot about 2010. Um, Democrats, one of the things that really hurt us all heading into the election was that there was kind of this perceived prisoner's dilemma where any individual swing district person thought they could do better by just bashing the Democratic Party and being like, oh, I'm not like them. I'm, you know, I'm totally different and independent. And it turns out that if people want to vote for a Republican, they'll vote for a Republican. Um, and if you go into the election being like, oh, I'm not a Democrat, then also why are Democrats gonna come out and vote for you? So fundamentally, each of, each of us would have been better if we had entered 2010 as a united party making the case for progressive policies. And I think that's the lesson we should take from that. And, and I, I think the, the big issue of the day right now is immigration. This is where a lot of these fights come to a head and it's, it's not an accident. Trump launched his campaign in 2015 spouting anti-immigrant hate. He ran on it in 2016. His first actions as president in 2017 were the Muslim ban and the fight for the wall. In 2018, he trumped up this idea of the caravan in order to try to get reelected. Uh, we know this is what it's gonna be about in 2020. So from our point of view, fighting on the immigration issue is again the morally right thing to do, but also we don't have a choice because the, the options are either you try to present yourself as Republican light which is a losing strategy, or you actually strike a clear contrast with this administration and say, no, we stand for this. This is our vision of what America looks like. But if you try to be in the middle, you're, you're gonna get the worst of both ends. I think that's super important and obviously near and dear to my heart. Um, there's a quote that Speaker Pelosi often tells us in caucus, which is something like, um, "Public." it's an Abraham Lincoln quote, public sentiment is everything. and. Um, she doesn't always say the second part of the quote, which I think is really, really important, which is um, whoever molds public sentiment goes deeper than he who enacts statutes or he who pronounces judicial decisions. In other words, Trump has figured out how to mold public opinion. Remember when Kavanaugh happened? He didn't go out and say, oh, that's terrible. He said, oh, what do you think about your brothers? This could be your brother. This could be your husband. Um, and I think that we have this obligation as elected representatives, but also those who are pushing elected representatives to actually not just look at where polling is and then follow it, 
but to use our platforms as activists, wherever we are, to really define what the issue is and explain it. And Tom Perriello's race doesn't always get explained in the beautiful way you explained it. Sometimes people say Perriello lost because he voted for the Affordable Care Act. And so I think Leah's explanation of exactly what Tom did and how he outperformed is really, really, really important. Okay, so um, section five in your book, incredibly smart, visionary, um, and in it, you talk about your blueprint for a democracy. So what do we do on day one of 2021? What does this new democratic president do um, with that majority? And so I want you to just talk about particularly start with filibuster reform because most voters know nothing about the filibuster and you give a really great history. Um, but for a voter who cares about climate change or Medicare for all or any of these things, tell us why filibuster reform is so important and what it means. May I offer a couple of like framing thoughts and then give it to you to talk about filibuster reform? Um, so we are starting from this kind of basic analysis that we have this problem, which is that um, Democrats usually get into office and we try to act on the policies that we ran on. Republicans get into office and they change the rules so that they can stay in power and then they go after whatever Democrats did in the last administration. And you know that's not just our analysis, right? That's a broader progressive movement analysis. And if we have to actually tackle that fundamental problem if the policies that we're gonna pass are going to be sustainable, if they're going to actually stay in place for the future. So that's where the blueprint for democracy came from. It's about what are the ways that we could structurally shift power such that it's actually more representative and thus our policies, which are popular, um, have a greater chance of being passed and staying passed. And Filibuster. Great, and, and just, just to your point, so this is only possible if we have a pro-democracy president and a pro-democracy Congress. I gotta be really clear about that. The blueprint is about building power in 2020 so that we can then use the power in 2021 to do these things. Like I said earlier, Mitch McConnell will do everything in his power to prevent any of these things from becoming law. And so if he is Senate Majority Leader in 2021, none of it's going to happen. He proudly calls himself the Grim Reaper of progressive legislation right now. Um, that, those are his words. So we know none of this is possible unless we first win. So. We also know that we could have this limited window of opportunity. So it is 15 months from now. The, the new pro-democracy president has just given her State of the Union or maybe his State of the Union address. Uh, we've got this pro-democracy Congress that is now meeting. The House of Representatives is able to pass legislation. It goes to the Senate. And then Mitch McConnell or whoever is Senate Minority Leader will filibuster it. That is what will happen. We know it already because they promised to do it. So. We start with the filibuster because it has been and continues to be a barrier for progressive change. There is no pathway to 60 progressive votes in the Senate anytime in the near future. And by near future, I mean couple decades. Our opportunity for actually passing any sort of legislative reform, whether it's democracy reform or Medicare for all or climate legislation or any of the big things we want to get done requires going through the filibuster. And now, the filibuster has been changed repeatedly, including twice since Trump got elected by Mitch McConnell. Once to install two ideological judges on the Supreme Court, and another time in order to expedite the appointments that Trump was making. So the Republicans change it when they need to in order to get their agenda through. We need to change it to save democracy. It's the only way to do it. Now, I will say for the rest of the reforms, the, the filibuster is a procedural, um, a, a procedural change that we need to make, that's clear. The rest of the reforms that we looked at were very specifically only things that we could do legislatively. 
And that's not because we don't care about uh, constitutional amendments. We, there are a whole set of constitutional amendments I would love to see. I would love to see a constitutional amendment undoing Citizens United. I would love to see a constitutional amendment eliminating the Electoral College. There are good changes that we should be building towards. And also, we need to recognize our house is on fire right now. And we are going to have a limited window, a very limited window of opportunity in 2021 to pass legislative change. So the things we look at, expanding the Senate by making D.C. a state, providing self-determination to Puerto Rico and other territories, uh, investing in public media so that uh, uh, we actually have an informed electorate, uh, ensuring that the tens of millions of Americans who currently don't have the right to vote actually have the right to vote. All of these things can be done by simple legislation. We could be 15 months from now looking at these laws being enacted. That is a first step. That's why we call it a day one democracy agenda. So that, that is our focus. It's not to say that other things aren't important, but it is to say we need to feel out what can we get done right now and let's get it done. And then let's talk about bigger stuff. Perfect. All right, so we're gonna move to your questions now. And I'm gonna lump three questions together because they're all about the 2020 presidential candidates. Um, first one, I strongly believe Indivisible should not endorse a candidate. Is it your plan to do so? And if so, why and when in the process will you do that? Second one is our chapter does not wish to engage in a primary endorsement, but we do want to be doing boots on the ground work starting now to ensure that we retake the White House in 2020. What concrete activities do you recommend our members take between now and July. And the third one is, how do we get help get a candidate to beat Trump and who is that? Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Um, I'll start on the endorsement side and then um, kick it over to you. Um, so Indivisible has been having a conversation with Indivisible groups around the country about endorsements, the pros and the cons over the last several months. And what we've been committed to doing, is, or what we've said is there is not going to be an Indivisible organization endorsement. There could be an Indivisible endorsement if it actually reflects the sentiment of the grassroots movement that genuinely is supporting a candidate. What we've seen is that that's not there yet. Um, what we do want to have the conversation around, though, is fundamentally, if you agree with this diagnosis, if you think that our democracy is at risk, and if you're looking at the democratic presidential field and you're seeing that some candidates are committed to these kinds of structural shifts that will actually change the trajectory of American democracy, what does that mean for the Democratic primary? Because fundamentally, if some of these candidates are gonna be stronger in the general election, if some of these candidates are gonna actually make these reforms law, if some of them are actually gonna pass the kinds of things that you wanna see in 2021, what does that mean to you? Yeah, I, so if you, again, like Leah said, if you buy the analysis, we view American democracy at a crossroads right now. And there is a very real chance that in 2020, we are headed, door, headed down a permanent path to white plutocracy. That's what one side wants us to head down. There is another opportunity which is actually passing reforms to create the pluralistic society that we wanna see represented in a democratic structure that actually reflects the will of the people. And that's what we, what we view as the number one priority right now. In 20 years, this is just simple census demographic statistics, in 20 years, 70% of the population is gonna live in 13 states. 70% of the population is gonna live in 13 states. The 30% of the population that is more rural, more white, and more conservative is going to have 74 senators. And by connection, they're going to have permanent control of the courts. That is where we're headed without change. 
and we are going to have a shot in 2021 at enfranchising millions of new people, at possibly admitting new states, at investing in media, at changing that natural trajectory. But 2021's our shot. So this is why we view who, uh, who wins the primary and what their positions is being as really absolutely crucial to the future of the country. Not in some far off future, but now. Now it is crucial. And so I, I don't know who's going to win the presidential primary. Uh, I, I do know that I, if they do not hold the priority of democracy reform at the top of their list, and if they do not have a bold plan to fix democracy, we're headed down to one of those paths. So that's why we are engaging in the primary the way we are. That's why we're engaging indivisible groups across the country the way that we are. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if just Leah or I in a room in DC say some candidate is the best. If the groups aren't there, it doesn't matter. So we will never parachute into a district or state and say that's the indivisible candidate and if you're not behind them, you're not indivisible. That's not how we run, we can't do that. So it's quite possible we don't get to a national endorsement um, and it's possible we do. We will be evaluating the candidates. We will be asking them which way they stand and my sincere hope is that regardless of who wins, it, whether, it, whether it's your top choice or your bottom choice, they come out of this primary process knowing that the indivisible groups are prioritizing democracy and hopefully they are prioritizing democracy. Uh, people probably know this, but we put out the indivisible pledge in about April of this year. Uh, there's a three-part pledge. One, we're gonna engage in a constructive primary. That looks something like what we just discussed, which is explaining why we care about these democracy reforms, why it's our top priority, and hopefully seeing the presidential candidates try to out-democracy each other. That's my ideal. If you don't like our plan for democracy, great. Tell us what yours is. I'm all ears. Second, though, we're gonna endorse whoever wins. If three kids in a trench coat wins the nomination, I'm on tr team trench coat, gonna get shirts, I'm gonna be out there knocking on doors, that's what we're gonna do. And third, it's not just enough to endorse. You gotta do everything possible to win. We've got 16 weeks between the Democratic National Convention and the election. We have to spend every one of those weeks ensuring that we win because every one of our candidates is Abraham Lincoln compared to Donald Trump. It's not a tough choice. So at the most recent presidential debate, uh, 10 of the 12 candidates on stage had signed that indivisible pledge, with two exceptions, Tulsi Gabbard and Yang. So we are actively committed to winning in 2020 because there's no alternative to that, but we shouldn't mince words. It does matter who wins in the primary, or at the very least, it matters what their priorities are and whether they're committed to saving democracy. The one other thing I'd add on that is we are already registering unity events for the week after the DNC. Um, so if you have not already started planning your unity event, um, which is about making sure that there is a powerful narrative coming out of the convention about the fact that we are all behind the ultimate nominee, go ahead and register that on the map and let's get started. Okay, so here's another one. How can we um, seamlessly connect our work at the national level with our legislative and election says electoral work at the state level. We're, we're a grassroots movement. We don't do anything seamlessly. Uh, it's all messy <laughs> and beautiful and organic, but that's how you know it's real. Uh, I do think, you know, the work that we're doing at the national level with democracy is not just a national level fight. There are really good fights at the state level, at the local level on democracy issues too. Many of the assaults on democracy are actually not happening at the federal level, frankly right now because there's a lot of gridlock at the federal level. So we see in Georgia uh, them purging voters, we see them purging the early, ro uh, early um, voter rolls in uh, Arizona, we see them making it more difficult for new folks to register to vote in North Dakota. This is happening at the state level and so I I actually think there's a lot of good you can do on democracy reform right now 
at the state level. And really, I would, I would hope that Washington would be a leader on this and showing the country what is possible. Y'all have done a lot already, but be that shining light of democracy here and be a model for what can be done at the national level and other states. Uh, we, yeah. we need folks who are on the forefront of this fight. Well, and Washington has been leading yes. the way, yes. right? Um, Washington early in 2017 was part of showing everyone else what the difference between a non-trifecta and a trifecta yes. could be. And I should add, um, obviously, we're coming right off of an election where Amazon basically tried to buy um, a, lot of, a lot of outcomes for itself. So the problems of money in politics obviously are very close to home here. Um, yeah, we, ha we will have the most progressive city council that we have had, and a lot of it is because when Amazon put a million and a half into our elections two weeks before the election, it really backfired. People understood that this is what we're talking about, this is what a rigged democracy is, and, you know, I feel like my, my big contribution was not only to speak out and say this is not just a thumb on the scale of democracy, it's a fistful of cash, on the scales of democracy, but also I called Elizabeth and Bernie and said, hey, guys, and we called a couple of others as well and said, hey, would you like to weigh in on this? Because it is about making sure that democracy works for the people. Um, Isn't it great to have a great representative like this? <laughs> <laughs> um, so here's one about voting machines, which I think people are really worried about. Flawed mo voting machines, old, broken, or deliberately sorry, something um, deliberately crafted maybe to misread. Yeah. Is there any way for the public to fight against them in time for the 2020 election? And then this person says rightly that we have um, paper ballots here, so we have a different system of verifying. But how do we deal with that across the country when we know Trump is asking for a lot of different countries to interfere in our um, elections? Yeah. This is, this is a great question, and I really wish I had a better answer. Um, I think the short version is there are places where legislation is moving that may help to secure some of the voting systems, right? Pennsylvania, for example. There are also a lot of states where realistically there is not going to be a significant improvement in the overall security or in sort of the general operation of electoral systems before 2020. And that is very scary and that is a real risk. And unfortunately in a lot of these places there's a reason, right? Republicans aren't interested in doing this. And that reflects pretty poorly on them for all the reasons that we talk about in the book. But I think what we need to acknowledge is that there's a very real risk that we're going into an election where there will be significant widespread problems. And the question for us then becomes, one, how do we run up the score so that any kind of fraud is extremely obvious and um, you know, really stands out? And two, what are the plans in the event of a significant um, significant threats to the legitimacy of the election. How are you mobilizing and what is the strategy across the broader movement to make sure that that doesn't go unanswered? Um, here's another one. Is it more fruitful to focus on returning our Democrats in purple congressional districts or to work on getting rid of Trump in 2020? I have a feeling I know what your answer might be. But... Both? Yes, oh, yeah. exactly. Yes. It has Got to it. be okay. both. I, I was like, I hope so. Yeah. Uh, this, is, this is a false yes. choice. We need to be doing both. Um, I, I want to be clear also, if we, if we effectively defeat Trump, but we do not take the Senate, I, it's not just that 
all these democracy reforms aren't possible. We're not going to get a Supreme Court justice from that newly elected president. We might not have a, a head of the Health and Human Services Department. Uh, Mitch McConnell will wield his power to prevent us from getting just about anything done. And I know that because that's what they were promising when it looked like Hillary was going to win. Ted Cruz and even folks like John McCain were openly saying, well, we're just going to not allow her to appoint a Supreme Court justice when it looked like she was going to win in October of 2016. So it is absolutely crucial that we net at least three Senate seats. We need to do that in order to enact any of these reforms. The good news is there are a lot of opportunities. It's uh, you, know, you have Colorado, Arizona, and Maine, which often are cited as the top. But even beyond that, we're looking in places like North Carolina and Iowa. Trump is underwater by two points in Montana. He's roughly even in Alaska. We've got a shot at Nebraska. There are actual real opportunities in places where traditionally Democrats haven't won. But because he is so egregious, we actually do have a shot at expanding this map a bit and taking the Senate. And we need to do that at the same time that we focus on beating him in all the states that we need to beat him in, in the Electoral College. So we have time for two more, but I'm going to cheat because there's one at the end that I want to oh, get yeah, to. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to ask you these two, and maybe each of you can pick sure. one or something like that. Is there anything other than winning the Senate that we can do to reverse the damage to the judiciary? That's one. Oh. And then the other one... Oh, sorry. Is there anything other than winning the Senate that we can do to reverse the damage to the judiciary? That's the first one. And the second one is Fox News and talk radio are feeding outrageous falsehoods about impeachment to the Republican base since Republican control the Senate and are supported by this. Um, all we can expect in the Senate is obstructionism, correct? What can we do about the propaganda, yeah. if anything? Okay, so uh, one of the uh, uh, sections of the of the last book, which or the, the last chapter of the book um, on democracy reforms, is on the media environment, and it's Fox News is a propaganda machine, but it's not just Fox News. We have Sinclair Broadcasting, which has been gobbling up all of the local, so everybody knows, great, um, <laughs> uh, has gobbling up all of the local stations. And, you know, fundamentally, we're facing a real problem at the local level, and it's not just in, in the United States. This is actually a, a, a worldwide problem, which is with the invention of the internet, the the, uh, the, the model for funding local journalism has collapsed. You no longer have classifieds to fund your local newspaper. It just doesn't exist anymore. That's why we've had just a, a total decline, a decimation of the media industry at the local level. And for a functioning democracy, you need an informed electorate. There, there is no alternative that, for that. And so what we are facing right now in this country, but they're facing in the UK and in Canada and elsewhere, is that the, the, the market is not producing that necessary good for democracy. And so when you have a market failure, you need public investment. You need public investment. That's the only solution to this. And so we haven't had a major investment in media since the creation of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting more than 50 years ago. Now, that creation of corp uh, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting has been wildly popular. The most trusted source for news among independents, Republicans, and Democrats is PBS. 
That, that is what is popular, and that is a government-sponsored program. So why have we not invested in media in the last 50 years? Why aren't we investing in local media? You can do that. Now, that's, that's not going to mean that Fox News doesn't exist anymore. That doesn't mean that you're not going to have some right-wing sources, but at least we're going to have more independent sources at the local level that are informing the electorate. Again, simple legislation that you could pass in 15 months. Agree with all that. I would just also add, you've Great. got to yeah, take agrees. on the big, yeah, I mean, we're, it's in the book, so yeah, it's good that I agree. Um, I would just add, you've got to take on the social media companies that are currently pretending they are not also news companies, right? Um, Facebook is, functionally speaking, a provider of news that has abdicated any responsibility to act as a provider of news. And that is also 100% possible for an incoming Democratic Congress, but you've got to build the political will to do that. Um, on the judiciary, actually, similar answer, I would say that we're in this really weird crossroads moment, which is that um, the Supreme Court is currently captured by a Federalist Society majority. Republicans have appointed 15 of the last 19 justices to the Supreme Court. And that's not because they've won elections um, you know, that, pr that proportion of times. It's because they are uh, working every part of the rules in order to get their people on the court and they don't care what they have to break to do it. Um, Fundamentally, we need to actually restore the legitimacy of the court because that is a problem for democracy that there has been this level of imbalance. And we're about to see a Supreme Court docket that you know, lays waste to fundamental civil rights across this country um, and, and you know, to the right to choose, um, to uh, protection, gender protections, um, to civil rights. It's gonna be, or to discrimination. It's gonna be really devastating potentially across the board. Um, we have to actually take on the fundamental illegitimacy of the court, and we have to do that by actually putting in place reforms that restore some of that legitimacy and restore some of that faith and take some of the arbitrariness out of this court. And so we put forward a set of different ideas in the book that are about, you know, could you start to create a practice of adding two Supreme Court justices with every presidential term such that it's a regular standard part of whoever wins an election then appoints justices. Um, the fate of the country doesn't depend on the health of you know, an elderly person who is trying to hang on. Um, that is not a functional Stick with us, way. Ruth. God bless Ruth. Yeah. yeah, that's not a functional way. That is not a functional way of making laws in this country. Um, and so we actually have a whole set of things, but what I would say is that we need to unpack the courts we do not yet have the political consensus that Democrats need in order to do that. And so a huge part of what we need to do over the next couple of years is just ask Democrats over and over again, do you think it's a problem that Federalist Society has taken control of the Supreme Court and what are you actually prepared to do about it to unpack the courts and to restore their legitimacy? And, and really, this is even before 2020, there are going to be a set of decisions Leah was alluding to on choice, on LGBTQ rights, on other issues. There, it could be a big docket. Uh, a lot of news is gonna be broken next year. And there's gonna be a question of how do we respond to that? And do you get your two Democratic senators to start staking out ground? That's something you can do immediately afterwards. If you don't like the decisions coming out of the Supreme Court, ask your Democratic senators what they're gonna do about it. Okay, so here's the last question, and you can take it any way you want, because I'm not sure exactly what the word is that's written here, but I'm just going to say it anyway, because it's from Vinny, who's seven years old, and we want to make sure we always answer questions of our seven-year-olds. So, Vinny, where are you? Stand up, and let's give Vinny a round of applause for being here. We love our young folks, and so here's Vinny's question. It says... Is it exciting? 
and you should take that any way you want. <laughs> yes, it's very exciting. Um, you know, I think there's the, um, what's the, the phrase, may you live in interesting times? Um, huh. Or it might be a curse. I think it's a curse, yeah. That may you live in interesting times. Um, you know, we are in this moment of an existential crisis for our country. It is not, you know, a new thing. It has been going on for a long time, but we are perilously close to Republicans winning a game that they have been playing for a very long time, and we're catching up. And I believe fundamentally that we have the tools and we have the, we have the power and we have the people power to actually beat them if we can put it to work. And I am lucky enough to be part of a grassroots movement that is doing that every day in a thousand different ways all over the country. And we're buoyed by the stories and the leadership and the impact that people have been having as they take control in their own home turf. And it is really exciting every day. Uh, yeah, we're a couple of mild-mannered policy wonks that are introverts who are now put in uh, this position <laughs> of talking to large crowds. Um, uh, it is it is incredibly exciting and just I mean just to underline what Leah said we all and not just us But all of us in this room We have we have the honor and the privilege of being in this fight for democracy at a crucial time for democracy We could be looking at the next 15 months as the turning point in American democracy where we actually change things These are these are the times in history that you read about and you ask yourself What would I have done would I have been on the right side would I have accomplished something there and that's where we are right now now, right now in this moment and so I, I find that incredibly exciting that we have the opportunity to make big change because that's not always possible but we are now part of this grassroots movement that is helping drive that change and where else would you want to be this is incredible exciting and painful and terrifying and also exciting yeah. <laughs> well I will just say that we are so grateful for the two of you for your leadership for indivisibles across the country that have helped to lead the resistance and are gonna be necessary for us going forward. You know I'm on the Judiciary Committee, so I really feel the, I've, I, <laughs> I feel the weight of this moment and nothing is gonna be possible unless everybody really engages. And I think that this book, and I really hope you buy it, is, if you haven't already, is a, a prescription for how people can engage and how we can take back our power and how we can really make democracy work for all of us. And just a little note, next week in Judiciary, we're marking up the um, bill that extends the date for us to get three quarters of the states to enact the Equal Rights Amendment. Woo! So. Woo! Just, just want to say two things. One, you know, Indivisible started as a very outside movement, and for much of the early time, we were very outside. We've been lucky to develop some relationships with some friends on Capitol Hill, and no one more so than your representative, Jayapal. Um, she has been a, an incredible leader broadly, a leader within Congress, behind closed doors, outside of closed doors, with the movement. She, more than literally anybody else in Congress is somebody who is helping fight for justice and we are incredibly proud to be working with her just about every, every single week. The, the, the other thing I wanted to note is, so we talked about how exciting it is to be part of this. I wanna be very clear, Lee and I wrote this book, but it is very much not a book 
for or about us. This is about and for the movement. The intent is to grow the indivisible movement and to direct us in the fight for justice and democracy. Our names literally aren't on the cover, and that's intentional. Um, because we want this to be about the indivisible movement. It's also, uh, just so everybody knows, we, we got an advance from Simon & Schuster for this. There are royalties associated with the book. 100% of all of that goes to Indivisible Save Democracy Fund. We don't get a dime from it at all. <laughs> so, which is to say, buy multiple books. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks, everybody, and I know you're going to get to get your book signed, and you'll let us know how to do that. Thanks for being here, thanks, and everybody. thanks for supporting Indivisible. Thank you. And that is it for this special edition of the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. For more information about the show, head to indivisiblepodcast.org. I am Stephen Cox, and I thank you for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye.